Hi there. Welcome to Journey Church. It's a privilege and delight to worship God with all of you today. We're in a message series that we call Authentic, and we're working our way through the lives of some of the Old Testament prophets. Today we're in the book of Isaiah, and we're talking about a couple of different kings who were contemporaries of the prophet Isaiah. And uh, you can see on your notes page that King Hezekiah is kind of the headliner of the day, if you will. And as I've been telling you along through the series, I've been resourced by some stuff that was written by Kevin and Sherry Harney and John Ortberg as I prepared this particular message and the whole run, as a matter of fact. And I want to start with our big idea, which is where we're going to end in just a little bit. And it reads like this. Hezekiah, that's the king of Judah, points us toward a pathway of trust in God, like radical trust, okay? Get that, radical trust, which is God's plan for his followers, Radical trust is God's plan for we who follow Jesus Christ, who trust God. And in order to kind of get a sense of the historical backdrop, uh, we need to understand the times that Isaiah and Hezekiah and King Ahaz were living in. And I think the best way to do that is to spend a little time over here at our friend, the map. And uh, I, I pre-drew this map for you, and I hope you'll see why, because there's kind of a lot on there. It took me about 15 minutes to draw it without you all looking on. might have been an hour and 15 minutes, because you'd be all nervous, because you're all looking on and such, okay? So I just want to paint some historical broad strokes for you, so you kind of get a sense of what's going on in the historical context. And, uh, and by the way, the Red Sea looks a bit like the Playboy Bunny, and if you look on a map, it kind of does, okay? It's just the way it works, and... You know, I, I don't know what to say about that. Maybe, maybe though, in this drawing, it's more like an oven mitt than a Playboy bunny. All right? So if you remember back, God's covenant relationship really began with Abraham. And Abraham was settled over here in this land called Mesopotamia, the, the Fertile Crescent. It's bordered on one side by the Euphrates River, the Tigris River on the other side. Babylonia is to the south. Assyria is up north. And this is where it all begins. God says, Abraham, I want you to go. I want you to actually leave Mesopotamia. And Abraham's like, all right, God, where would you like me to go? And God's like, well, I'm not going to tell you that. You just go. And so Abraham, he sets out, right? He and his descendants, they set out, and they settle right over here in this land. If you were just to draw a big circle around that, that is called Canaan. That is the land of Canaan. So Abraham and his descendants, they move on, and God settles them in this land called Canaan, right? But then this bad stuff starts happening in Canaan, uh, primarily a famine, there was a famine in the land of Canaan, and so Abraham and his descendants, they walked like Egyptians right down to Egypt of all places because there's food and there was life and there was resources down there in Egypt, and they dwelt there. They set up shop there. They lived in Egypt for a long time, and then you know what happens. This guy named Moses rises up, right, and he leads God's chosen people, all those descendants of Abraham, who there's a whole bunch of them now. Moses leads them out, right, and so they head out, and this map is not drawn to scale, uh, just so you know, and they spend a long time right in here in between the, the fingers of the oven mitt in a place called Sinai, and they wander around in here for a very long time, 40 years, they wander around in there out here in the Sinai desert and Mount Sinai is about right there and that's where they are right 
Then God says, all right, it's time for you to enter then the promised land, which happens to be Canaan. And so they go, are you following all this? Are you following this down to here? Yep, mm -hmm. it's a big blur of lines at this point, but just bear with me, you'll see. They enter the promised land of Canaan, and there they hang out. And you know the story. Right? Saul is the first king of the people of God, and then David is the second king, and then Solomon is the third king, and then bad things happen. The kingdom divides. Civil war breaks out, and you can see I've got it all drawn out here already for you. Israel, ten tribes to the north, split off. Their capital is Samaria, two tribes, Judah to the south. Jerusalem is their capital, and that is the divided people of God. Ten tribes to the north, two to the south. And these two nations, as you can see, they're surrounded by all of these other nations. And by the way, these are enemy nations of the people of God. They're enemy nations. And all these nations, Edom, Moab, Ammon, Syria, Phoenicia, Philistia, like Philistia is like right in their back door, right? Egypt sometimes, Arabia, Babylonia, Assyria, Media, they are primitive, they are backwards, they are barbaric people who are at odds with the people of God. So get that backdrop in your head if you would. And we're just going to leave that up there and I'm going to keep talking around this. And if you read very much of the Old Testament, you, you don't have to read very much at all, as a matter of fact, to get the sense that all of those enemy nations around Israel, they had a very difficult time playing nice with each other. And that happens generally because all of those little nations, they were trying to build their own empires. But in most cases, see, this empire building, it wasn't so much about national pride, national honor and such, but rather was motivated by an economic reality more than it was motivated by anything else. It was a strictly financial deal. All those little nations, see, they all had kings, and all those kings had egos, and all of those kings wanted to build stuff for their nations, palaces, roads, all kinds of other infrastructure. They also had to be about maintaining a military for the protection and the advancement of their nation. And in the days we're talking about, back here in the Old Testament times, there, there was no banking system. Nations could not just borrow money to build all that they aspired to build, all the infrastructure and such, no loan programs. Thus, the king of the nation would then set about invading neighboring countries in order to pick up additional revenue streams, like instant revenue streams that would last for a very, very long time. So anytime the approaching drums of an empire-building nation were heard in the distance of all of these little countries, there was much fear and trembling because they all knew what it meant to be swallowed up by some empire. Their whole world would change in just a blink. And for a long, long time, even centuries, Israel and all these little nations, they managed to exist as nations because there were no dominant superpowers in the region. Yeah, there were some superpowers, I'll give you that. Egypt, Babylonia, Assyria, and Persia. But for several hundred years, those empires were more or less sleeping giants. They were pretty dormant. But then around the year 700 BCE, Assyria, right up here, this is Assyria in the north of Mesopotamia, they begin to awaken from their slumber. They begin their rise. Assyria begins to march on, taking over smaller countries all throughout the region, just swallowing them up. 
And an empire-building nation like Assyria, they had this constant challenge before them. The challenge went something like this. As their army would take over a country, they would seek to leave behind the very smallest occupying force that they could because their goal, see, was just to retain control of a country or region, yet not weaken their own offensive military machine by spreading them out too thin. They needed the core of their military muscle to be able to fight new battles and conquer new countries to continue to add to their revenue stream. If they conquered a nation, this tightrope they had to walk was if they conquered a nation and wanted to keep a very small force there as occupiers in order for them to maintain control, they then began to send thousands, even tens of thousands of people from those conquered nations into exile. They would send them back home to Assyria and they would hold them captive there. They started with leaders. And when the leaders went away, the influence of the leaders went away and you cut the heart out of a nation's national identity. You siphon it right off. And then it was real easy to keep an occupied land under control. And that's how it went when an empire like Assyria began to rise up. And that's the backdrop of the ministry of the prophet Isaiah, who we're going to talk about today. And the big question we're going to unpack really today is when this superpower Assyria emerges... Will the people of God, will the people of Israel give in to fear and do foolish, impulsive, and destructive things? Or will they just trust God and turn to him for help? That is the single issue with the rise of Assyria and the nation of Israel. If you've got a Bible, I'd invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 7. We're going to camp out there for a little bit. Isaiah chapter 7. If you remember back to last weekend, we looked at the call of the prophet Isaiah from Isaiah 6. And this week, we're going to look at a couple of different narrative accounts from the ministry of the prophet Isaiah. The first one takes place prior to the Assyrians' invasion of the northern kingdom of Israel. But Assyria, like I said, is on the rise. And the first guy we're going to talk about today is our friend King Ahaz. King Ahaz, and he is really the example of fear and folding. King Ahaz is the example of fear and folding. If you've got a Bible, you can look at Isaiah 7-1, or you can follow along on the side screens. It reads like this. When Ahaz, son of Jothan and grandson of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Syria and Pekah, son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, set out to attack Jerusalem. However, they were unable to carry out their plan. Here's what's in view. Assyria is on the march. They're gobbling up these smaller nations all around the region. Two of these smaller countries, Syria and Israel, decide they're going to join forces and try to put a stop to the nation of Assyria. And they want King Ahaz, who is the king of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, to join them. And Ahaz is like, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not doing that. There was no way he was going to fight against Assyria. He was a smart man, not a chance. Well, that ticks the king of Assyria off. It also ticks the king of the northern kingdom off. And so they decide to join together and actually go to war against Ahaz and the southern kingdom called Judah. Their goal was to overthrow the stick in the mud Ahaz so they can convince the nation of Judah to join them and help them stand against the Assyrians. Now Ahaz is freaking out because he realizes he's about to be attacked by Syria and Israel, two nations coming against him at once. Look at verse 2. The news had come to the royal court of Judah. 
Syria is allied with Israel against us. So the hearts of the king and his people trembled with fear like trees shaking in a storm. That is a vivid picture of fear, isn't it? Like trees shaking in a storm. Now just put yourself in Ahaz's place for just a moment. Assyria is the big kid on the block. Israel and Syria hate Assyria. They're fighting against Judah. Who do you think Ahaz has in mind to turn to for help in his time of need? Assyria. If you thought Assyria, you would be right. He's thinking about turning to Assyria, forming an alliance with them. Just one small problem with that little plan. It is not God's plan. That's not God's desire. That's not God's heart. Because you see, God is about to use Assyria to bring judgment upon the northern kingdom, upon Israel, because of their unfaithfulness, their treatment of the marginalized in society, the stuff that Amos, the prophet Amos, was talking to them about. We talked about him a few weeks ago. But then Assyria, while being used by God, is also about to come under the judgment of God because of their idolatry and their corruption and their violence and their paganism. And God does not want Judah, God does not want his people in cahoots with either one of those nations. So God sends Isaiah to speak to King Ahaz. Don't form an alliance with Assyria, he says. Trust God instead. Just let God deliver you. Look at verses 3 through 7. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Take your son Shear Jeshub and go out to meet King Ahaz. You will find him at the end of the aqueduct that feeds water into the upper pool, near the road leading to the field where cloth is washed. Tell him to stop worrying. Tell him he doesn't need to fear the fierce anger of those two burned-out embers. Anybody ever call you a burned-out ember? Not a polite thing. You're a burned-out ember. King Rezin of Syria and Pekah, son of Ramalia. Yes, the king of Syria and Israel are plotting against him, saying, we will attack Judah and capture it for ourselves. Then we will install the son of Tobiel as Judah's king. But this is what the sovereign Lord says, which is what really matters, right? This is what the sovereign Lord says. This invasion will never happen. It will never take place. And then look down at verse 9. Unless your faith is firm, Isaiah says, I cannot make you stand firm. Unless your faith is firm, I cannot make you stand firm. Now, God knows that King Ahaz is fearful and he's trembling like a leaf in the wind. And because of that, God decides to make Ahaz a remarkable offer. God actually invites Ahaz to ask him for a sign. Look at verses 10 and 11 of chapter 7. Later, the Lord sent this message to King Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign of confirmation, Ahaz. Make it as difficult as you want, as high as the heaven or as deep as the place of the dead. This is extremely unusual. God knows that King Ahaz, his faith is incredibly weak, so he offers him a sign. And Isaiah chapter 7 verse 11 is quite a unique verse. You can have a sign, Ahaz, as difficult a sign as you want. And we all think that Ahaz would be thrilled with Isaiah 7.11. We'd think that Ahaz would be saying, thank heaven for 7.11. But he doesn't say that, does he? I know, that's really bad. <laughs> I almost wasn't going to say it today, but I was like, all right, I'll throw it out there. Ooh. Look at verse 12. But the king refused. No, he said, I will not test the Lord like that. 
Ahaz says, no thanks to God's offer of a sign. And Ahaz does a very interesting thing here. He covers up his disobedience with a very thin veneer of piety. We shouldn't put God to the test, should we? And at first brush, it looks like Ahaz is doing the honorable, reverent, righteous thing by refusing a sign from God. But he's not fooling Isaiah at all. Here's the question. Why didn't Ahaz obey Isaiah? Why didn't Ahaz obey God ultimately? Why didn't he ask for a sign? And it's like this. Because Ahaz, see, he wanted to keep his options open to be able to disobey God sometime in the future. He wants to have the option to be able to jump in and follow God or to go the other way and disobey God if that suddenly seems like the better option to him. Ahaz knew that if he were to ask God for a sign and then agreed to submit to him, the option that he felt he needed most would no longer be in play. It would no longer be available to him. Ahaz wanted to keep his Assyria option open. You have to put your trust in something, right? You just have to. And Ahaz decides to trust Assyria over God because they were the big kid on the block. And Ahaz reveals for us a very deep truth about our nature, about human nature. And it's this. We'd all see, of course, like to do what is right. We would all very much so like to do what is right. But our tendency is to want to keep our options open just in case we really need them. We want to keep an escape route, I'll call it, open for when push comes to shove, even if shove means that God would not approve of what that looked like. We all want to be honest, of course. But if we're in a desperate situation, if we really have to make sure of the outcome, if we're not really sure we can trust God to take care of us the way that we think God needs to take care of us, if we spoke the truth or if we did the right thing, and so we very privately, without ever saying the words, we cover it over with a thin veneer of spirituality and piousness. We reserve the right, we hold back the right to deceive and to shade the truth. There's an old, old story about a little girl in her Sunday school class, and she got her Bible verses just a wee bit mixed up one Sunday. One Sunday morning, her teacher asked the class to explain what a lie is. Kids, could you tell me what a lie is? And this little girl, she raises her hand and she pipes right up. A lie is an abomination unto the Lord and a very present help in time of trouble. And the truth be told, there are a lot of us who live like that verse is actually somewhere in the Bible, right? Because it's a real scary thing to say, I'm cutting off the options of deception and manipulation and hype and selling. I cut myself off from all of that and I will simply speak the truth. I will simply trust God with everything, with the whole banana, the entire outcome. I will trust God. God. And Isaiah, he goes to enormous lengths to reassure Ahaz. And God decides to give Ahaz a sign, even though he didn't ask for one. Look at Isaiah 8.1. Then the Lord said to me, make a large signboard and clearly write this name on it, Mahar Shalal Hash Baz. 
I asked Uriah the priest and Zechariah, son of Jeberechiah, both known as honest men, to witness my doing this. Then he gets real interesting. Then I slept with my wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said, Call him Mahar Shalal Hash Baz. For before this child is old enough to say, Papa or Mama, the king of Assyria will carry away both the abundance of Damascus and the riches of Samaria. And if you're pondering names for your next child, why not consider the name Isaiah chose for his kid, Mahar Shalal Hash Baz? He is the spelling test in school, right? Just spell his name and you get an A. And what God's doing here in the book of Isaiah, he's using names like he does a lot throughout the whole Old Testament to reveal his plans. Mahar Shalal Hashbaz means quick to plunder. The name of Isaiah's kid points to the fact that Israel and Syria, they're about to be plundered by Assyria. But Judah, not Judah. They're going to remain safe and secure from harm in the protection of God himself. And even though God goes to these great lengths to assure King Ahaz that he and his kingdom will remain safe, he still will not trust God. Instead, Ahaz goes ahead and he brokers that deal with Assyria. But the irony is that the deal he brokers with Assyria is what ends up ruining his life. Look at 2 Kings 16, 7 and 8. King Ahaz sent messengers to King Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria with this message. Watch what he says to the king of Assyria. I am your servant and your vassal. You can translate that word vassal to mean son. I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the attacking armies of Aram and Israel. Then Ahaz took the silver and gold from the temple of the Lord and the palace treasury and sent it as a payment to the Assyrian king. Ahaz willingly becomes a puppet on the strings of the king of Assyria. He calculates that in the political climate of his day, he'd better put his trust in somebody, and he goes with the big kid on the block, Assyria. And he even takes the silver, and he takes the gold that people had given for the temple of God, and he sends it to this very pagan ruler of Assyria. Now just imagine what that would be like. Imagine if we as leaders around Journey Church all of a sudden shipped off all of the money. There's about $853,000 in the bank right now in Journey Church accounts that you have all given to this light initiative, to the initiative to buy the land and we'll locate our ministry campus on. There's about $853,000 in the bank. That's money that you've given, money that you've sacrificed to that initiative. And imagine if we just shipped that off to some pagan ruler somewhere. You talk about painful. You talk about painful. But that's exactly what King Ahaz did. His heart was so far from God. And Ahaz begins a slide deeper and deeper and deeper into sin, further and further and further away from God. And by the end of his life, Ahaz was having altars built to the Assyrian gods, and he leads the people of Israel away from the worship of the one true living God into idol worship, headlong into idol worship, And his slide into sin and distance from God went so far that near the end of his life, he actually took one of his own sons and placed him in a fire and watched him burn to death as a sacrifice to the pagan gods of Assyria. Whoa. Now, there's no way that King Ahaz ever planned for his life to end up like that. 
Ahaz never set out to murder his own kid, to sacrifice his freedom, to mislead his people, to betray his God. No one ever plans to do that. No one ever plans to go that route. So why did Ahaz end up like he did? It's been suggested by others, and I would tend to agree, that mostly it was a fear deal. Mostly it was a fear deal. See, fear does bad things to people when it's handled poorly. You know this. Fear tends to make us selfish and impulsive and foolish and untrusting and desperate, right? Fear really dries up our ability to be compassionate and honest with each other. And once a human being is afraid enough, it really is hard to tell what we'll do. And see, sometimes we hear voices inside of our head that say things like, you can't handle this. This is something that not even you and God can handle together. This is way too much. And the deal with that voice and those voices is you can be absolutely 100% certain that that is not from God. That is not from God. That is the furthest thing from the voice of God. I heard someone say one time that you will never ever find this verse in the Bible and God panicked. You will never find that verse in the Bible. If you read the whole Bible cover to cover, you will never find a verse that says, God panicked, or a verse that reads like this. And then God said, what will I do now? God never panics, and he never leads his people to panic. Ahaz, though, he led a fear-based life, and it ended up in disaster. Fear destroyed him. Let's leave Ahaz and move on to another narrative from the ministry of the prophet Isaiah. If you're in the text, you can flip over to Isaiah 36. And we're going to talk about King Hezekiah now. And this is where we're going to land for the rest of our time together. And King Hezekiah is really for us the example of radical trust. King Hezekiah is the example of radical trust. And these events that we're about to unpack in the life of Isaiah, they take place a few decades later than the episode with Ahaz that we've been talking about. At this point, the northern kingdom of Israel does not even exist anymore. It's been gobbled up by Assyria. Now only the tribe of Judah exists out of the 12 tribes. Out of 12 tribes, there's one left. And when we pick up the story, Judah is holding fast, averting a similar fate to that of Israel, primarily because of the tremendous courage of their king, King Hezekiah. The king of Assyria, now a guy named Sennacherib, he is prepared to squash Hezekiah and Judah like a bug. But he'd really just prefer that Judah surrender so that he won't lose any soldiers in the battle. And so, one day, King Sennacherib sends his officials, his delegation, to intimidate the people and the leaders of Judah. They're trying to intimidate Judah into just surrendering to them. Look at Isaiah 36, starting in verse 4. What we're going to see is the Assyrian chief of staff speaking to Hezekiah's officials out in front of the walls of Jerusalem. You can picture this in your head. This delegation comes from Assyria. A delegation from King Hezekiah goes out outside of the walls. All of the people of Jerusalem, they know this meeting is happening, and so they've lined up, they're hanging off the walls, peering over the walls, they're listening in to find out what's happening, and the Assyrian chief of staff utters these words, this is what the great king of Assyria says, what are you trusting in that makes you so confident? Do you think that mere words can substitute for military skill and strength? Who are you counting on that you have rebelled against me? Are you counting on Egypt? 
If you lean on Egypt, it will be like a reed that splinters beneath your weight and pierces your hand. Ouch. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is completely unreliable. But perhaps you will say to me, we are trusting in the Lord our God. But isn't he, the Lord your God, the one who was insulted by Hezekiah? Didn't Hezekiah tear down his shrines and altars and make everyone in Judah and Jerusalem worship only at the altar here in Jerusalem? King Hezekiah did that, and it was a good thing. I'll tell you what the ambassador from Assyria says. Strike a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. And then he starts taunting him. I will give you 2,000 horses if you can find that many men to ride them. With your tiny army, how can you think of challenging even the weakest contingent of my master's troops, even with the help of Egypt's chariots and charioteers? What's more, do you think that we have invaded your land without the Lord's direction? The Lord himself told us, attack this land and destroy it. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Assyrian chief of staff, please speak to us in Aramaic. They're asking for him to speak to them in the language of ambassadors, the language of diplomacy and such, because they don't want the people of Judah, the rest of the people, to be able to understand what's going on, because they know full well what this Assyrian dude is trying to do. Please speak to us in Aramaic, for we understand it well. Don't speak in Hebrew, for the people on the wall will hear. But Sennacherib's chief of staff replied, do you think my master sent this message only to you and your master? He wants all the people to hear it, for when we put this city under siege, they will suffer along with you. They will be so hungry and thirsty that they will eat their own dung and drink their own urine. That is very concerning, isn't it? It's concerning to us just as we think about it in this room, isn't it? Not to mention it being threatened against you. Imagine what it felt like for the people of Judah. Then the chief of staff stood and shouted in Hebrew to the people on the wall, Listen to this message from the great king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Don't let Hezekiah deceive you. He will never be able to rescue you. Don't let him fool you into trusting in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely rescue us. This city will never fall into the hands of the Assyrian king. The Assyrian chief of staff, see, he is working a very specific plan, and it's called psychological warfare. He knows that once he's seeded enough fear into all of those people, them listening in on the walls of Jerusalem, that their faith and their loyalty and their unity will vanish. It will disappear. It's gone. He knows that fear will destroy their confidence and paralyze their resolve and actually turn them in on each other because fear is one of the greatest enemies of spiritual community. Fear is one of the greatest enemies of spiritual community. Every time we choose fear, the community that God has in mind for us to become withers and shrivels and dies a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. See, building healthy spiritual communities takes boldness and fearlessness. And in Isaiah chapter 37, the prophet Isaiah comes to Hezekiah to encourage him to respond to the threats from Assyria in a God-honoring way. Isaiah, he's seen kings come and he's seen kings go. He saw Ahaz give in to fear and live with the staggering consequences of that choice. And so Isaiah tells Hezekiah the very same thing he told Ahaz decades earlier. Trust God. Trust God. Be brave. Stand firm in your faith. But this time, unlike Ahaz, Hezekiah listens 
And he doesn't surrender to the king of Assyria. He stands very firm in his faith in God to deliver him and deliver his people. And of course, word of Hezekiah's bold refusal to bow to the mighty nation of Assyria gets all the way back to Assyria, to the king of Assyria, that guy named Sennacherib. And he is outraged. So he sits down, the king of Assyria does, and he does what angry men always do. He writes Hezekiah a letter. Right? He writes Hezekiah a letter. And back in those days, it took a long, long time for data to move from one place to another. There weren't any emails. There were no telegrams. No such thing as FedEx back then. And so finally, that letter that King Sennacherib wrote to King Hezekiah of Judah arrives. And King Hezekiah receives the letter, and he sits down to read it in Isaiah 37.10. Here's what it says. This message is for King Hezekiah of Judah. Don't let your God in whom you trust deceive you with promises that Jerusalem will not be captured by the king of Assyria. You know perfectly well what the kings of Assyria have done wherever they have gone. They have completely destroyed everyone who stood in their way. Why should you be any different? Have the gods of other nations rescued them, the nations such as Gozen and Haran and Rezeph and the people of Eden who were in Telassar? My predecessors destroyed them all. What happened to the king of Hamath and the king of Arpad? What happened to the kings of Shepervaim, Hena, and Iva? Sennacherib runs through a laundry list of nations that have been pummeled and crushed by his army. And he asks Hezekiah, what makes you think that you're going to be any different? And see, that is the worst possible news for Hezekiah to receive. It is the worst possible news for the people of Judah. Sennacherib is saying, I will completely destroy you and your puny little nation. I've done it before, and I will do it again. And humanly speaking, Sennacherib is absolutely right. Humanly speaking, this is no contest. Back in the 1960s, a very, and I mean very short, cartoon film came out that was entitled Bambi Meets Godzilla. And we actually found it for you, so watch this. That's it. You too could be a filmmaker. That's it, right? The Assyria versus Judah contest would have been just like that film. Bambi, right, Judah, would have gotten crushed by Godzilla, Assyria, humanly speaking, of course. And the question comes to us today. What do you do with a letter like King Hezekiah got from King Sennacherib? What do you do with a letter like King Hezekiah got from King Sennacherib? What do you do when you get the worst news you've ever gotten in your entire life? What do you do? Well, look at what King Hezekiah did. Isaiah 37, 14. This is so cool. After Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it, he went up to the Lord's temple and he spread it out before the Lord. He spread it out before the Lord. Hezekiah, this is fantastic. He takes his greatest worry, he takes his greatest burden, he takes his greatest fear, and he very openly expresses that to God. He expresses the heaviness and the anguish that's in his heart. He does precisely the right thing. He spreads it out before God, and he prays a fantastic prayer. Look at Isaiah 37, starting in verse 15. And Hezekiah prayed this prayer before the Lord. 
O Lord of heaven's armies, God of Israel, you are enthroned between the mighty cherubim. You alone are God of all the kingdoms of the earth. You alone created the heavens and the earth. Bend down, O Lord, and listen. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to Sennacherib's words of defiance against the living God. It is true, Lord, that the kings of Assyria have destroyed all these nations. They have thrown the gods of these nations into the fire and burned them. But of course the Assyrians could destroy them. They were not gods at all, only idols of wood and stone shaped by human hands. Now, O Lord our God, rescue us from his power. Then all the kingdoms of the earth will know that you alone, O Lord, are God. That is so cool and so rich. Because Hezekiah goes to the one place where answers are found. The one place where courage is gathered. The one place where hope is restored. He goes to God in prayer. King Hezekiah takes that letter from King Sennacherib and he spreads it out. Can you picture that? Before the Lord. He seeks the face of God in prayer and God hears him and God cares. And in response, God sends a message through the prophet Isaiah to Hezekiah and that message is this. Hezekiah, because you prayed, it's very specifically written that way in the text. Hezekiah, because you prayed, the threats of King Sennacherib will not come to pass. Because you spread that out before me, because you took that piece of paper and you laid it at God's feet, it will never come to pass. And so here's the question to us again today. What do you need to spread out before the Lord today? What are you carrying that you need to spread out before the Lord today? Just like King Hezekiah, we get letters from Assyria all the time. You and I live under an immense amount of pressure, don't we? And see, anytime we get any piece of news or even just a thought that could tempt us over into anxious concern or to cause us to live in anxious fear, even if just for a little while or anything that disturbs our ability to live inside of God's loving care, that's our letter from Assyria. See, what's yours? What's yours? What's your letter from Assyria? What's your piece of paper that you need to spread out before the Lord? Maybe it's a piece of paper from work. Maybe it's an assignment at work that seems way too hard. Maybe it's a performance review that has you worried or an expectation that you're not even close to sure that you can fulfill. Maybe it's a little piece of paper from your job that says, I'm sorry, your services are no longer required here. Maybe for you, your letter from Assyria is a test or a project at school that's looming over your head. Maybe your piece of paper is from a bank. Maybe it's a bill that you don't think you can pay. Maybe you have huge financial worries. Maybe your piece of paper, your letter from Assyria is a word from a doctor. Maybe it's cancer even. Maybe it's a piece of paper from a teacher about one of your children and it's got you so twisted up because that's your kid. Maybe it's a word of rejection from someone very close, very important to you, your spouse perhaps. Maybe it's an email that cuts you to the core. Maybe it's a piece of paper from a lawyer's office. Maybe it's just a deep sense of anxiety inside of you and you have no idea why it's there and you can't get rid of it. 
Maybe your letter from Assyria is something like what's printed on one of the thousands, and I mean thousands of postcards that have been sent into this thing called Post Secret. It's a four-year-old project in which people mail in their secrets and their confessions and their concerns anonymously, and they do it on a homemade postcard. And we made a video of just some of those that have been sent in to Post Secret. I invite you to watch this. We have a whole lot of different things that we can do with those letters from Assyria that arrive in our lives, those things that we're most concerned about. But King Hezekiah sets the example. He spreads the worst letter with the worst news he's ever gotten, the heaviest burden that he had ever carried. He spreads it right out before the Lord. And God hears him, and God cares, and God answers him. And the story of King Hezekiah and the nation of Judah and the conflict with the nation of Assyria and King Sennacherib comes to a conclusion and it ends like this. The angel of God comes and completely routes, and I mean completely routes, the Assyrian army. And they go home and they tuck their tail between their legs and Assyria begins a decline that they will never emerge from. True story. They never emerge from it. And what's so striking to me about this narrative is that King Hezekiah, he was never really alone, was he? He was never really alone the whole time, just like you are never alone. Never alone. And see, this fear deal is the natural condition of our lives apart from God. We are not created as human beings to be secure in ourselves. We are not gifted as human beings with the ability to just engineer our own security, our own safety apart from God, independent of God. But we do have the ability to invite God to be part of our lives. And when we do that, and when that happens, we have the ability only by God's grace, only by God's power in us to overcome that fear, to live beyond the natural condition of fear that just comes from being a human being. That is not an overnight procedure. It's a gradual and growing process of God's peace permeating more and more of the real estate of our hearts and of our souls so that actually it becomes a habit for us to do just what King Hezekiah did. Spread it out before the Lord. And that's how it works. The most important activity towards God's peace overwhelming our natural sense of fear is very simply prayer. That's it. It's prayer. Prayer is God's primary method of permeating more and more and more of the real estate of our heart and our soul with his peace. And so because of that, today, we're going to do just what King Hezekiah did all those thousands of years ago. I would ask you to grab something to write with. You might find one in the pocket in front of you on the chair. Or, and then I want you to grab this little piece of paper that you've been hanging on to so diligently that you were handed when you walked in. We all come into this time with stuff that we're concerned about, with stuff that we're worried about. We all come into this time toting a letter from Assyria that's hanging over our heads. It can be a whole bunch of stuff. It might be family or finances or guilt or sin. We all come with that stuff. And I want you, just over the course of the next few moments, to write down on this little slip of paper right here just a word or a phrase that represents, that most represents what your letter from Assyria is. 
what you are most concerned about. What's your letter from Assyria? What do you need to spread out before the Lord today? And this is just between you and God. You're not going to hand this in. You're not going to show this to anybody unless you choose to. And then I'm going to invite you to put that piece of paper with that, whatever it is written on there, to hold on to it or put it in your lap and just spread it out before the Lord, just like Hezekiah did all those thousands of years ago. Give it to God in prayer, would you? And for the next few moments, we're going to close this service down by making this a time of worship and prayer. And I invite you to use this time however you'd like to use it, to spread out what you've written on that slip of paper, spread it out before God and pray and worship God through music. In just a moment, the ushers, they're going to come and they're going to give us a chance to worship God by our giving to him. If you're our guest, please feel no obligation to give. If you're our guest, we invite you to let those bags go right on by you. And just use this time to spread out before God whatever it is that you need to spread out. And then take this with you. And just don't make this like a one-time spread it out before the Lord. Take this with you. And like tomorrow and the next day and the next day, spread it out before the Lord. Spread it out before the Lord.